Hey, everybody, we're talking to Demetrius Zagalatis today. What an amazing guy. He's an anthropologist that studies rituals all over the world, has some incredible stories of firewalkers and why seemingly irrational behaviors drive our success. He's a great new friend of mine. You don't want to miss this incredible conversation. Welcome to The Last 10%. Your host, Dallas Burnett, dives into incredible conversations that will inspire you to finish well and finish strong. Listen as guests share their journeys and valuable advice on living in the last 10%. If you are a leader, a coach, a business owner, or someone looking to level up, you are in the right place. Remember, you can give 90% effort and make it a long way but it's finding out how to unlock the last 10% that makes all the difference in your life, your relationships, and your work. Now, here's Dallas. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Dallas Burnett, sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers Barber Chair in Thrive Studios. But more importantly, we have an amazing guest, somebody I have been so looking forward to getting on the show for like three months. We've had him on the calendar for a long time. He's a world traveler. He's seen amazing cultural rituals. He's got a PhD in anthropology. Welcome to the show, Demetrius. Hi, Dallas. It's great to be with you. Oh, man. So I've got to share with the listeners how this came about because it's a unique this is a unique story on how you came to be on The Last 10%. We get recommendations, people reaching out to us to share guests that they'd like to have on the show. And we also get, we also get former guests that, that, that give us ideas and recommendations. But this show is special because I found your work on this, this subject and the book Rituals. I read it and I was so blown away at the insights that you have laid out on this topic and this subject. I was like, we got to get this guy on the show. We have got to get this guy on the show. So I actually reached out to you and was like, man, can you make the last 10%? And so we're so thankful that you are on the show today and made some time for us. I'm so excited about this conversation. Well, thanks for having me. So some of the listeners may be wondering exactly what is an anthropologist and what do they do? Tell us a little bit about what anthropology is and what you do. Yeah, broadly speaking, anthropologists study human nature. Of course, mm. that is very broad. And, uh, and indeed, there are many shades of anthropologists. Most people, since the, the first Indiana Jones movie came out, <laughs> most people think of anthropologists as archaeologists. And, and those are, some anthropologists do that. Some anthropologists study human nature in the past through uh, the artifacts that, that they left us or through whatever they can dig up. But I'm the other kind of anthropologist. Uh, mm. I'm, the, I'm a cultural anthropologist. So I study uh, human cultures in contemporary settings. So I study living people. Mm. And in fact, I'm, even in that respect, I'm a bit different than most cultural anthropologists in the sense that I combine psychological perspectives and I combine experimental perspectives with what we call participant observation. So I still go to the field and, I, and I've spent years in different field settings, just living with local people and trying to get a sense of what they do and why they do it. But at the same time, I try to bring experimental methods and measure things. So as they do the things that they do, I try to, to do things like bring wearable technologies to see what their emotional reactions are, or to find ways of quantifying their behavior and how they interact with one another. 
that's one of the things about your work that I found to be so interesting was that you were combining so many different aspects. It was like you just said, the technology piece. I thought you were so clever in how you were capturing data. It was really cool. We'll talk about that more in the show. But also it was not, it was, there was, there's a theoretical piece of it, but there's so much, there was so much data that you collected in the moment on the ground with people and so much time that you spent inside the culture and just getting to know people. It was just so enlightening. It's very fascinating. So tell us what inspired you to get into the field of anthropology? I guess what my first inspiration was just the people that I admired, the people who are my heroes and mm. growing up in, in Greece. This was the time before the internet was widely available, just a few years prior to that. And we didn't have, we only had two or three television channels. There was no cable television in Greece at the time. Mm -hmm. So the kinds of programs that I enjoyed watching as a kid were things like David Attenborough's programs. And then mm -hmm. I would see, I would watch people like Jane Goodall and Jacques Cousteau. Mm -hmm. And these people were not necessarily anthropologists, but what they had in common is that they were explorers. They liked getting out there in the real world and they liked mm. combining different forms of knowledge so they would combine their own personal experience some of them would talk to other other people they would observe things in the field in a real life setting but they were also bringing scientific measurements that's really great i i think that's awesome and that, i love how that informed what you're doing now and it also not just anthropology but informed how you do anthropology like what yeah. what part and of, of course, another source of inspiration and i'm sure that this has been the source of inspiration for so many anthropologists was national geographic oh yeah just uh, looking at those colorful glossy pictures and reading those stories about faraway places and all those extraordinary rituals that really yes. got me excited i was at a, a i was at this place one time and they had it was an old bookstore or something they had these national geographics magazines they were still for, they were for sale and it, the, I, there was two boxes of them. They were just trying to get rid of them. And they were all from like the 1980s, <laughs> which is all the ones I remember. <laughs> so I looked at them. They were like, I was like, oh, how much are these? They're like, I don't know. If you want to take them, we'll do like $2. I was like, $2 a piece? They're like, no, for the two boxes. I was like, yes, put them in my car. So yeah, still, there's still a collection from the, <laughs> I guess, the late 80s and early 90s in my parents' house. So good. So good. So that's awesome. All right. So in your book, you make the statement that rituals are like a true human universal. Let's mm -hmm. talk a little bit about rituals. And, and when you say that rituals are a true human universal, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Sometimes you, you hear the, the term universals and, and it, it's often hard to substantiate. But I think when it comes to ritual, there's no doubt. There's definitely no human society that we've ever documented, whether past or present, that didn't have any rituals. Mm. It is so pervasive that archaeologists sometimes turn to, to ritual when they want to determine whether a particular society can truly be called human. For example, did they bury their dead? Did they perform any kind of ritual actions? Because those actions also point to things like our ability to, to have symbolic thought mm. and our, our empathy and our ability to mm. connect. So some of the things that make us human. That's incredible. So they would actually use rituals to define, as an archaeologist, define what human is in the past. That's awesome. I've not thought about that. So let's talk about exactly what rituals are like. How do you separate the idea of what a ritual is than, say, a, a routine or a reminder? What makes rituals 
specifically different. Yeah, that's a good point because ritual is one of those terms that people use in all sorts of ways. It, it, it's used so much that it can mean different things to different people, and that's okay. Mm. But when I study ritual, what I'm interested in is pretty specific. And that means that when we compare it to other things like habits and routines, we can distinguish ritual because it has two key characteristics, I think. One is that there is no causal relationship between the action you undertake and the effect that it is meant to have, if there is an effect in the first place. So that's what we call uh, causal opaqueness. Okay. And that means that some people say, brushing my teeth, is that my morning ritual? And I would say no, because that has a clear purpose and there's a direct causal relationship between what you do, uh, how you use the brush, and what you expect it to do. But if I were to wave my toothbrush in the air every morning, either with the belief that it will clean my, my teeth or with no belief at all, just because, then that's a ritual. <laughs> and, and I think the other aspect that characterizes ritual is that ritual actions are perceived to be special. They're perceived to mm. be, a lot of the time, they're perceived to be sacred. Yes. And that means that when our rituals are interrupted, we feel upset. Sometimes mm. we feel morally upset, even. Really? Just like to feel that something's missing or that something's been taken away or it's like we, the world's not right. Something's exactly, got to be yes. put back in place. Yes. I think that's a very interesting way to describe rituals because I think, you know, when you talk about that toothbrush example, it's funny, but it's so true. It's there, there are some things that you do. And it's, I think about the athlete who's walking out of the locker room and they're touching all the signs on the walls, mm -hmm. play great today, or you're a champion or whatever. They're touching that with the expectation that's giving them some kind of mental edge. And yet it's, if you really look at that, it's like, what? You've been practicing for like three months in the off season and you're going to the weight room and getting up at five in the morning and doing all this stuff. And then you're like, nope, if I don't touch this sign or wear different colored socks on the way out the door, like things are not right. Not, exactly. That is true. And since you mentioned <laughs> sports, it's a great domain to observe spontaneous rituals and private personal rituals. And in fact, there are studies that show that elite athletes tend to have more rituals. You might expect oh, they would really? have fewer because they, there's more skills, so they would rely more on their skill. In fact, they have more rituals. And we believe that the, the reason is that they compete for higher stakes. So it's those kinds of environments, high mm. pressure, high uncertainty environments that breed ritualization. The more, the higher the stakes and the higher the uncertainty, the more. So it's almost like <laughs> you could say like a stressful, the more stress, mm. stressful the environment, the more likely that would be a an, a, a breeding ground for more rituals. Is exactly. That, is that... This is why you also see a, a lot of personal rituals in the casino. And this is actually something that we have tested experimentally. So we have done experiments ah. where we stress people up and, and then we quantify their behavior. We use motion sensors to see how they move. And we see that their behavior becomes more rigid, more patterned. It becomes like a ritual. It becomes redundant. So I remember in your book, I think it mentioned that Something like that, there was a study on how in Israel, how the closer they were to like an area that was dangerous on the borders, there was women in that area that would have more rituals. That, that was very interesting to me. That's, it's not intuitive necessarily why you would think like you would, that there would be a difference. It would be like this person or society or these things with certain rituals, but then to say, no, ones that are going through high stress would actually have more. That's very interesting. What is it about rituals that draw us as humans to them and 
make us want to do them? Because we said this kind of a breeding ground when we're in a stressful environment. But what is it about rituals that draw us into that, that make us want to do that? Mm -hmm. So rituals are very successful social technologies. And the reason they're so successful is that they're able to trigger multiple cognitive mechanisms at the same time. So let's take one of them at a personal level. And that's, I think we have to look at this because for, in order to get to cultural rituals, in order to get to group rituals, as you mentioned, ritual has to be attractive to us at a personal level. Now, what draws us to, to ritual? And the theory we're proposing with my colleagues is that rituals help our brain find the sense of order. Now, the way our brain works is that our brain is a predictive machine. It keeps making yes. predictions about the state of the world. Before I finish my sentence, your brain already has a prediction about what is going to come out of my mouth next. And if it doesn't, then it gets confused. And this kind of predictive coding happens all the time, whether it's about our perception, what we see. Let's say if we, my window has bars right now and my brain makes up the missing information, perceives a, a complete image, and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. And that means that because of this architecture, which is a very adaptive, very useful cognitive architecture, if I have low predictive capacity, so if I don't know what's going to happen next, then I get stressed, we experience anxiety. And what's the best way? Well, one of the best ways to alleviate anxiety is to get a sense of structure and order mm. to allow your brain to make predictions, to anticipate what's going to happen even if it's another domain. And that was, that's what ritual offers, because if ritual is anything, it is structure. When you're performing a ritual, you know exactly what to do, you know exactly how to do it, you know exactly when it's supposed to happen. Mm. So that gives your, your brain a sense that you're on top of things, you're in control of things, you know exactly what to do. There's no more uncertainty. Now, does that solve your problem directly? The stressor? No, it does nothing for the stressor. But if it helps you relieve anxiety, it can help you achieve your outcomes in an indirect way. And in fact, that's what we see, for example, in other studies with athletes, where we see that athletes who perform pre-game rituals, they perform better in the game. That doesn't happen through any kind of magical causation. That happens because they're better able, they boost their confidence and mm. they lower anxiety. And if you prevent oh them from gosh. doing those rituals, then they begin, it throws them off and then they perform worse. That's incredible. I love how you summarize that. And it makes sense when you apply it to those stressful environments, because like you're saying, if we're predicting, if we're going in, into an environment of unpredictability and our brain is trying to predict things, then that, in, that inherently is going to create anxiety mm -hmm. because we can't achieve what we're wanting to achieve in the sense that we can see around corners and understand that environment. So it's almost like we almost, we perceive it as more in our control because we've done this thing that is very orderly and timely and all that stuff in that same environment. Yeah, and, this, and this too is uh, something we can actually measure. So we've done studies in uh, both in the lab where we measure people's cortisol levels and we see that there's a correlation between how many rituals they, they take part in and their... Uh, stress levels. So there are people who take part in more collective rituals. They have lower levels of stress. Uh, and then we go out into the real world and we went into Hindu temples in Mauritius and we measure wow. people's physiological responses. We see that after performing uh, their usual rituals, their heart rate variability increases, which shows that they're better able to cope with uh, stress in those environments. You've seen rituals all over the world and you write about a lot of those in your book. 
what are some of the most impressionable rituals that you have experienced with people or seen? Yeah, so I've, I've your... seen a lot of rituals around the world, but some of the most impressive ones for me are definitely some that include body modification. Mm. Uh, one of those rituals is the type of Samkavadi. It's a Hindu ritual. It's a Tamil Hindu ritual. So it's performed in southern India, Sri Lanka, but also anywhere where you find members of the Tamil diaspora, which is pretty much around the world. This ritual even happens in neighborhoods of Toronto and New York. But where I oh, study, wow. it's massive. So there are about 100 temples having processions on the same day. And this is the island of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. And this ritual involves, it's essentially a long pilgrimage to honor Lord Murugan, a Hindu deity. Okay. But on the way to the temple, and this pilgrimage may last for three, four, six, eight hours, depending on the, the context. And on the pilgrimage, pilgrimage, people carry these large structures called kavadi, and that, that actually means burden in the mm. Tamil language. And they're decorated with, with feathers and, and flowers, and there's a lot of symbolism going on there related to Lord Morgan. So they're very heavy, and we've done studies where we measured the, the size and the weight of those kavadi. Some of them can weigh well over 100 pounds, oh, and they'll wow. carry these for six hours under the midsummer tropical sun. So this is oh, January, February in the Southern Hemisphere without having any food or anything to drink. And then when they reach the temple, they have to climb 242 steps, carrying them up to the temple. But that's not even the beginning of their suffering because yeah. before they, they embark in this procession, they begin to have their body pierced. And some of them, most of the women will have one piercing through the tongue or through the cheeks. And this is a needle, mm. a long needle made of silver. Mm. Uh, this symbolizes a vow of silence. But uh. some of the men, they can have hundreds of needles. Some of them can have their entire body pierced except for the genitals. And, mm -hmm. and it gets even worse than that because some of them have hooks through the skin of their backs by which they, they drag these enormous chariots so they can be the size of a small bus. Uh, They're pulling and, them with the hooks in their back. Yes, they are. Oh. And then some of them have long skewers the size of broomsticks pierced through their cheeks. And they can oh, be so long and heavy gosh. that they have to bite on them and hold them with two hands. Otherwise, they'll, they will rip their face off. Ah. So, yeah, I can see your face now, your oh. reactions. It's something that is not easy to watch. Oh, man. And they will do this for, they will experience this carrying the object and then all these piercings for, you said, up to six hours as they proceed on this procession. Yeah, this goes other. on for half a day or, or sometimes. And they're doing this with all day. the other people, like everybody else is carrying these things and going through this at the same time. Yes, there, there are like several what? hundreds of people in every procession oh, doing this man. actively, being pierced. And then there's many more walking alongside family members who are not pierced, but they're, you, you can really see the emotional contagion in that context because their loved ones are also crying. They, they vicariously suffer with them. Oh, man. So they're not, it's not like a parade where you think of it where there's like these bystanders on the street cheering everybody on. It's more like... No, no, no. These... It's not a, a carnivalesque type of ritual. Yeah. It's a very solemn procession and people take it very seriously. Every once in a while, people begin to fall into to trance. And when this happens, again, you can see the emotional contagion. I think when, when the first person starts, then there's the, the person next to them is more likely to start as well. And they start swirling to the music, and then they start dancing with all that weight on their shoulders. 
and they they start to, dancing they with, with while they're carrying this big heavy burden and they've carried it for all this time and they go into what you say is a trance. Yes, and they just and this, start. In this context, dancing is mostly circling around. You can imagine uh-huh. if you're carrying a hundred pounds on your shoulders, you constrained in in your movements. Oh, goodness gracious! And this is every year. They do this every year. Correct. Oh my goodness! So let's talk about that a little bit because you collect data not only from the participants in the ritual, but also from the spectators or the people that are on the peripheral of that. What are some of your findings related to people's experience? Like how, what's the experience of the person actually doing the ritual, whether that's carrying this load, this burden in this procession or walking on fire, mm-hmm. and then the experience of the people that's actually watching it. Tell us a little bit about that. This was one of the most exciting things that we have found out with those studies. So in one context, and this is a small village in Spain called San Pedro Manrique, they have mm-hmm. fire walking rituals every once uh, every year uh, on the summer solstice. Again, uh, the hottest part of the year in that part of the world. They have this festival of San Juan, and that culminates with a big firewalk. So at midnight, everybody gathers at this big venue that they've built specifically for this purpose. And there are thousands of spectators that have come from nearby villages, and a group of men and women will walk through burning embers, and those are. When I say burning embers, uh, we measure the temperature at 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, my Which is actually gosh. enough to melt aluminum. Oh, And, my and they will gosh. walk there barefooted and while carrying somebody on their back. They carry another person. <laughs> so yeah, I've always wondered that. I've not experienced the fire walk before, but I've seen people do it, and they spread these coals out on the sand, and you just run through it, and I'm like, I don't know if that's, but this is real deal. Like they, 1200 degrees. Yes, I have seen insane. many fire walking rituals in my life, but that one is quite something else. The, the intensity of that fire and they, they, they intentionally use uh, oak wood, which burns at a very high temperature. So that surface is, and it's very, the surface is deep as well. So it produces this very high temperature and just standing near it feels like you're opening an oven and your face gets roasted. Oh my goodness. It, it, it just seems like everybody that's going to do this is going to have is massive injuries. Do they know that kind of going into it? And they're just like, I'm okay with that. I'm going to have some, So, you know. In fact, most people don't get burnt while fire walking. And there's a physical explanation for this. Coal is a very poor conductor. Okay. And the best analogy that I've come across is baking bread in the oven. So if you open your oven and stick your hand inside it and touch the bread as it's baking for one second, you're probably not going to get a burn. You will feel the heat. It will be very hot. Mm. But if you touch metal plate for the same duration, you will get a serious burn. You'll get a burn. And oh, for that matter, the, the air inside the oven is at the same temperature the moment just before you open it. Oh, man. And, and that means that you can have a, a, a short period of contact with it without getting burned. Obviously, if you were to stand on the coals, but having said that, because, just because it's possible to do it and not get burned doesn't mean that it's guaranteed. In fact, there, there are many ways to get burned. <laughs> and two, just the psychological perspective of looking and feeling the heat, like you said, oh, I mean, yes. you, you, you feel it on your face, your whole body is, is hot and you're looking at these burning coals and you've got to walk across psychologically. That has got to be a real, I don't know, that's intense, man. That's got to be, intense, especially with thousands of 
people and you got somebody on your back, that is, you're setting up a pretty intense environment. It is right very there. intense. And that's the kinds of things we're measuring. So when we look at these people's heart rates right before going into the, the fire and as they're walking through the fire, their heart rates reach levels that we, I didn't personally think were possible. Things like 240 beats per minute. What? And when we looked oh. at the maximal <laughs> medically accepted level of arousal, most of these people were above it, which means that they were in, in risk of having a heart attack. Oh my goodness. Oh, that's incredible. And that's not, that's not necessarily because they've done this massive amount of physical activity before. That's just anxiety, like intensity producing heart rate. Like you're just Absolutely, in the moment. Especially oh. in that context, they are actually seated and they're waiting for their turn. They're not engaged in any kind of physical activity right before uh, the firewalk. So we're going to know that this is just stress. This, the highest heart rates are happening, and they're not even walking over the fire yet. They're, this is like right before they go right up. Right at the moment, right before entering the fire. That's the highest. Oh, oh, my goodness. So you're in this environment. You've got all these spectators. You've got 1,200-degree firewalking going on. What are you seeing? You So their heart rates are ridiculous right before they start walking. What happens when they hit? What, what happens when they hit the firewalk? So... What we were interested in seeing was whether we could see emotional alignment in this ritual. And this relates to mm. anthropological theories that talk about how these rituals create a sense of social cohesion. It's very common, and the people that I studied with, that I work with, they kept telling me that the way it feels when you go through the fire, it feels like mm. you become one with the crowd. There are so many people ah. there, but you feel like one. And this really echoed some anthropological theories about the way these rituals create social cohesion. It's by, by the alignment of people's emotions. If we all feel like one, feel the same way, then, then we also feel like that we're more bonded and more similar. Yes. So that's what we were testing. And, and that's why we collected measurements both from the fireworkers, but also from people who were watching. And we made sure to have people different who had different kinds of relationships there. So we had their friends and family, but we also had uh, outsiders who just arrived there. There's so many curious tourists who come to witness this. And oh, what we found man. was that, first of all, we, we saw an extraordinary degree of synchrony during that ritual. So not only those who walked on fire, but also those who were waiting for their turn, those who were just uh, sitting there and watching, their heart rates being, uh, began to synchronize. But this only extended to the members of the community. So the outsiders, the, the tourists, we didn't see any kind of synchrony with them. And in fact, oh, they, wow. the level of synchrony based on their degree of connectedness. So your closest oh. friends, your close family would be more synchronous uh, through, their vicariously, through their vicarious suffering alongside you compared to more distant friends. And when you say synchrony, like you mean your heart rate or your, how do you, how do you describe in, in that? In this Just case, we're of, looking at heart rate. So we're looking at, at how their rate. heart rates uh, go up and down at the same time. So they're tracking, their heart rates are tracking together. So the more yes. connected you are in an experience like this, the more you experience it essentially the same way as the person that's actually doing the rituals. You would feel that same. And that results into more bonding. And we have seen this in other studies where we looked at sports fans spectators in basketball games and through an entire yes. season we measured their physiological reactions to the game and we see that it, it is during those games that people's heart rates 
are more closely synced, then people have they have a better experience with the game, a more meaningful experience, and they also feel more bonded with each other. When their heart rates, when their physiological reactions, when their emotional reactions are more synchronous, more, more aligned. And more synchronized. So when you actually feel that, it's almost like you can, I could see that because there's been games that you go to and you're like, you can, it's almost palpable. Like you can feel this energy in the, and everybody's, it's almost, I don't know how to explain that. It's I like know exactly what you mean because I'm a, I'm a yeah? sports fan and it's very hard to explain. And this is, this is exactly the point. Why we did all these measurements? Because all of these anthropological theories were talking about this ineffable feeling. There's something that is very hard to describe, but people experience. Yes. They, some people describe it as a jolt of electricity or goosebumps yeah. at the back of your neck. And that's how I feel. Yeah. When I go to my home team's stadium and to watch a game of football, what you call soccer here, yes, yes. and I chant with 30,000 people, I do get goosebumps. It's incredible, but it... But, you know, when you ask that, and I try to describe it, uh, it's not easy to describe. It's just like what you said. Like, I could describe it. It feels like a, almost like a dance or energy or a lightning bolt, like you said, or goosebumps. I've had all that when you're, you just feel, like you said, in sync. So it's fascinating that, and, you, and the more connected you are, the more in sync that you are. So you can mm -hmm. almost see who's in the community because they're in it with everybody else. You, I would think that's like reinforcing because... The more you experience it, that it would seem like the more connected and aligned you are and the more bonded. And so it's, I don't know, that's fascinating. All right. So you also found some interesting relationships that are not, it's just surprising to me. Like you, you described that ritual earlier that people were getting piercings and su suffering a great deal, but you found some surprising relationships about pain and rituals. Tell us a little bit about that. Like what, what have you found in, the, in that? Category. Yeah, this was so after we did this study in Spain, I wanted to find that context, uh, an appropriate natural context where I was th that would allow me to study whether what we find in the body extends to behavior. Because mm. it's one thing to say, if we think that these rituals make people more bonded, it's one thing to look at their heart rates, but it's another thing to see whether their behavior actually suggests that they're more pro social within that community. And mm. that was what brought me to Mauritius. That was what led me to study those rituals that I described that are even more painful than firewalking. That sound means it's time to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. If you lead an organization or a team, one of the biggest challenges you face is developing your people. Think Move Thrive is here to help you on your journey. We've developed a coaching system that integrates into your team or organization to consistently develop your employees, build trust, gain valuable feedback, and increase accountability. Leadership retreats and summits are great. We even build those custom for our clients, but they're only part of the solution because they lack consistency. Our one-on-one -on -one coaching app is the missing piece in your employee development program. We help new leaders get to know their teams, we help technical managers be more relational, and we help ensure that your relational rock stars stay organized. We developed the system for a client, and it was so successful, we created the app to help more organizations develop their people, build trust, engagement, and you guessed it, performance. For more information, go to thinkmovethrive.com to learn more about the one-on-one -on -one coaching system and start developing your team today. Back to the show. So in the context of that ritual that involves um, body piercing and all kinds of forms of suffering, we set up a, a 
charity that was administrated by local research assistants. So people didn't know that it was us who were behind this. Right. And we looked at how much money people donated after performing a painful ritual or a less painful ritual or no ritual at all. And this was members of the same community going to the same temple between those two rituals uh, in the context of the same festival. But some of these rituals are high intensity, some of them are low intensity. So we're interested in seeing how the same people would react after each one of those uh, events. And we see that compared to the control, so charity donations collected outside of any kind of temple of ritual context, compared to that, people who took part in a collective prayer, they gave almost twice as much. So taking part so, in a collective ritual increased pro-social giving, increased generosity. But then looking at the very painful ritual, uh, those people gave even way more. They gave three times more than baseline. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're saying you guys were at this ritual in this kind of community that's going through these rituals this, at this time. You set up a charity with locals. And the charity is asking for donations after they finish these rituals. And if you go through this kind of prayer time, it's fine and it's good, but it's not very intense. You're then asked for it and you give a certain amount. And then if you go through maybe a more communal type walk or whatever, then you give twice as much as somebody that just had prayer. But then if you actually are the one that's going through excruciating pain and suffering, you give three times as much more to the charity. See, that is not intuitive at all. I, I, I just, that is, that's incredible. Like, it so. Is, it might not be, I think it's not intuitive if you try to rationalize it, but, it, but at some level yes. we already know this. And the reason, one fact that suggests that is that when people are trying to organize donations and charity events, what they do is that they, organ, they do things like marathons. They don't do things mm. like a warm cup of cocoa. Yeah. <laughs> Remember the ice bucket challenge? It invited people to oh, suffer. Yes. Oh, and it I've raised not a, even thought a, about that. Lot of money. That's so true. I didn't yeah. even think about that. Oh, so you increase the suffering and it increases the participation. It's because you're almost, it makes sense because it's going back to what you said. You're almost, you're engaging and becoming part of a community through that suffering. And then you feel more connected and that particular community has a cause or something like that. And that's what's going on. So, And another interesting thing interesting. we see there is that in the context of that ritual, on that day, it was not just the ones who suffered that gave more money. It was also their family and friends who were walking alongside the procession. So again, those who suffer vicariously, they also became more prosocial. So on those days, the entire community becomes more prosocial. Oh my goodness. So it wasn't just the one that it was everyone, like you said, vicariously. That is so interesting. I think that was one of my favorite parts of the book, by the way, just how you described that in so much detail and the results. I, I just, that was really something that caught my attention. I think that's really interesting too, because so many times I think we see painful things as a negative. And I think what your research has shown though is that is the other side of that coin is that there's very interesting social and internal benefits for us to go through these painful things even whether they're rituals or even not it just it, it's almost like an awareness increase absolutely and, and once you and start thinking about it then you will see that so, so there's this psychologist uh, Paul Bloom who okay. who talks about how 
suffering can create meaning. Mm. And if you think about it, some of the most meaningful things in our lives, uh, the, the kinds of things that, that create meaning for us, they're the mm. ones that involve suffering. They're the ones that mm. involve a lot of effort and sometimes a lot of pain. So you climbed Mount Everest. That's, that's something that you will cherish for the rest of your life. You mm. raised four children. Quite <laughs> painful yeah. it can be. <laughs> you won a championship. True. How much effort does that require? How much pain is there involved in this? All of the things that we come to consider the most meaningful in our lives, they involve a lot of effort, a lot of suffering. And it's, it is perhaps because of that we come to connect um, pain and effort with meaning. So we perceive mm. things as more meaningful sometimes just because they're more uh, effortful. Make more effort. That is awesome. I love that. That's so good. So we have a lot of listeners that are leading organizations. They're leading teams and that's their thing. That's their grind. That's their uh, responsibility. And on the last 10%, we love providing them information that will help them be better because the last 10% is all about finishing well, finishing strong, living in that last 10 doing the extra efforts and the extra things to live in that last 10%. And so I think rituals are so important. We're actually, we've been talking about this book that we've got coming out. And one of the reasons that your book was so intriguing to me is because it, it's, it's part of Lyft, this new business fable coming out. We have uh, a, a section in there that is speaking to rituals as it relates to work and business and how it's so important to include those in as, as something that will help build and move and strengthen the culture of an organization or team. If you're thinking about that as it relates to your research, what would you, what ideas or how would you speak to that as a way people could do that at their work or in their teams? Yeah, this is something that I see that the business world is increasingly aware of. You know, up until a few decades ago, so the society I grew up in as a as a kid and then as a teenager, it was fundamentally different view of work than what is what we have now. And that was that mm. you work, you're not supposed to enjoy work, you're not supposed to derive meaning from your work, you just go in, you, you put in your hours and then you, you punch out and you, you, you leave and that's, it's okay to hate your work. Uh, and, <laughs> whether, and, and if you're a business owner, this is just a bad idea. This, whether you see it from a Marxist perspective, the alienation yeah. of workers, or a capitalist yes. perspective, how do I increase productivity? You want your, your employees to, to enjoy their work and you want them to derive a sense of meaning from it and a sense of community. Yes. Otherwise, yes. you can't retain them. Otherwise, they won't be happy. They won't be productive and so on and so forth. And ritual is a par excellence way of creating meaning. This was something that I realized when I moved from Greece to Denmark. Uh, I went there as a student initially and later as faculty. And it immediately struck me this difference between the workplace in Greece and the workplace in Denmark. Now, Denmark, Denmark happens to be one of the most productive countries on the planet. But to me, it just seemed that they weren't working all that much. They were just, they had all these kinds of rituals at the workplace. So every morning really? we, we would take a break at, at 10, a coffee break. And then at, at lunch, we'd all do lunch together. And the reason I'm referring to those things as rituals is that sometimes they were not even, uh, there was not even a functional purpose. That means that even if you already had lunch, even if you had brought your own lunch, you, just, you didn't stay in the office and have lunch. You just joined everybody else, even if you weren't oh having lunch. Oh, my goodness. So this wasn't about the lunch per se, right? Uh, and then every Friday, there was a Friday bar. 
And then on Christmas, there was a big party and each unit of the organization. So my department had a Christmas party and uh, my unit had a Christmas party. And of course, they were not on Christmas. They were days earlier because you had to attend multiple ones. And this was, I could see that for the Danes, this was something sacred. Like nobody missed the Christmas party at work. Really? Oh, that's awesome. There was was singing and there was playing games and drinking and all kinds of things, all kinds of pageantry to, to, at the same level that you would have at a family, at your biggest family holiday gathering. And that's exactly the reason, because those kinds of celebrations create a sense of family. And mm. in a successful community, in a well-bonded community, you need both of those types of rituals. You need the regular mm. kinds of rituals, your morning ritual or your lunch ritual that provide this sense of collective identity and the, the reminders of the, the group's goals and values and, and insignia. But then you also need these high arousal rituals. Every once in a while, you want the big party where everybody comes to increase their heart rates, whether that's mm. playing a, a game of paintball as a group or whatever this ritual becomes for your team. You also need this intense level of bonding, which produces a sense of family at the end mm. of the day. Because if you think about it, who is who are the people in your family? These are the people you experience strong emotions with, the people you, you laugh with, the people you, you cry with, the people you participate in those important flamboyant rituals with. Right. Some social theorists have even gone as far as to say that any kind of social group is only truly a group when they perform a collective ritual. And if you think oh. about this, when are the members of an extended family ever together as a group at a wedding at a funeral at thanksgiving when are the members of a college body together at a graduation ceremony when are the fans of a team ever together in in the stadium performing these collective chanting rituals yeah ritual creates actively it it doesn't only symbolize uh group membership it actively creates it i think that is absolutely incredible and so awesome. I've never thought about the, the defining a group by the rituals and really how the actual groups are assembled around the rituals. And it's so true, like extended family, you just said it. I, I, that's, that is so true. Even like fans on sports, we're getting together and we're seen as those fans when we get together for that sporting event. I think that's amazing. If you're leading a team I think the challenge today that I'm hearing is if you're leading a team, if you're leading an organization or a company, and you haven't taken the time to be intentional about ritual mm-hmm. in your team or organization, then what you're doing is you're leaving the connectedness and the bonding and the alignment of your organization up to something that's not very intentional. And it may be good, it may not be good, but I I can assure you that intentionality and focus is gonna make it better. So with that, Demetrius, do you feel like there's a recipe for a good ritual? Because you've said two different kinds of rituals there. You said there's one kind that's more of the the daily ritual. I'll I'll say that's the waving the toothbrush in the air (laughs) ritual. And then there's the one that is the more of the firewalking ritual, which is to get your heart rate up. And it's a spectacle. Is, if someone was wanting to be more intentional about that, and they said, I want to be more intentional, create a ritual or have a ritual. 
What's the recipe look like? How does one go about doing that? I think it's not easy. So I think the, the, the best way to go about it is to rely on accumulated cultural wisdom. So to turn to other mm. traditions. Mm. And to do that, you have to be open to the idea that, that ritual both predates and extends far beyond religion. So it's mm. not about religion. What I mean mm. by that is that in, in my family, for example, we're not religious. And we never had a Christmas tree. But mm -hmm. when my son was born a few years ago, we decided we're going to have a Christmas tree and we're going to have these rituals. It's not mm -hmm. about Christianity. It's about mm -hmm. family. And so in that sense, the best types of rituals to, to develop are the ones based on established ones. Mm. Uh, every single day, there will be a million different rituals that are born. And most of them will not be around next week or next month. The ones that have survived this process of cultural selection are the ones that clicked with individuals, the ones that were most successful in, in, in doing things like creating meaning and alleviating anxiety. So those that, are, that have been around for ages, I, I, I would start with those. And then, of course, you have so, to tweak those you have to fit your own company culture or your family or whatever group it is you're trying to, to use them in. That's, I love it. It's almost like they've passed the test of time. And so if they've passed it by sticking around, by being more sticky through, through different generations, then you can know that those are more powerful and more meaningful because it's been more meaningful throughout time. But I love that. That's, a, that's great advice. This is, we're going to get into some more personal stuff here. So you've studied rituals for a long time and you've looked at a lot of different places, but you've heard the saying, if you get too close to the fire, you might get burned. So tell us about a time, because I love the story in the book. Tell us about a time where you went to study a ritual, but then the professor turns into the participant. Tell us a little bit about what happened there. Yes, I like how you phrased that. That was a, in a very literal sense what happened. For many years, I, so I did my doctoral dissertation studying fire-walking rituals. I went to, to Greece at a small uh, village called Aia Leni, And I spent several months there just talking to the locals and getting their stories and doing ethnographic work. And I finished my PhD, and then I went to study another fire-walking ritual in Spain, and that's when I started introducing other types of methods, so the measurements there. And eventually I went to Mauritius. So by that time, I had seen many fire-walking rituals but I had never taken part in any of them. And mm. the reason was, one reason, was that in the other contexts in which I had studied those rituals, I would not be allowed. So in Spain, it was only strictly for the locals. In Greece, it was a bit broader, but it was only for people who were true believers and that there was a process of, of getting accepted into the group. And I didn't want to pretend to be somebody I, I wasn't. So I never attempted to do any of those rituals. Sure. But in Mauritius, the, the local community was uh, very welcoming from the beginning. And at some point, as the, I was uh, watching the preparations for what was going to be the first firewalking ritual I was going to see in Mauritius, some of the locals, there was, a, there was an evening where I was looking at the preparations and then I, I noticed that people were staring at me. And, and at some point, then they waved at me to come closer. I said, Hi, what? And, and they said, you know what? We've been thinking, Dimitris. And I, I could tell this was not going to lead to, to anything good, the way they said it. 
Hesse, we've been thinking that you've been with us for all these months. You're now part of a community and to which I, I tried to say, I don't want to pretend to be an insider. I'm just here to watch and learn from you. It's also important for me to maintain some sort of distance in order to be able to take notes and shoot pictures and so on and so forth. But they said, since you're now part of this community, you should try the firewalk as well. So I, I politely tried to decline the, the invitation. And then somebody said something like, if God wants you to do it, then you will do it. And I said, trust me, Prakash, God does not want me to walk on fire. <laughs> but apparently I was wrong. <laughs> apparently God did want me to walk on fire. Oh, uh, so on there. the day of the ritual, and this was all forgotten. I went back home and I told my wife at the time, my, my girlfriend who was with me in the field, about it, and we all laughed about it. We said, ah, it was a joke, and we forgot it. But then on the day of the ritual, they allowed me to be inside the enclosure and to take pictures and notes, and I was really fascinated by, by everything that was happening around me, and the, the sounds and the yeah. colors and the emotions, and I was trying to take good pictures, and to this day, some of the best pictures that I got from, of this event were, was from that particular year. And wow. at some point, somebody taps on my shoulder, and then they say, that's a better spot for you. I say, oh, really? Can I go that close? And I say, yeah, go ahead. So I went there and I kept taking my pictures. And a while later, there's another tap on my shoulder. And I, I look up and it's Prakash again. And he says, stand up. So I stand up and, he, uh, and I say, what? And he goes, turn around. And I turn around and the entire village is looking at me. And I'm oh, sitting man. and I'm realizing only that moment that I'm standing in front of a fire. Oh, man. And he just whispered something in my ear. I, I think he said, uh, now you will know what the fire really is like. Oh, something, man. Something along those lines. And at, <laughs> at that point, it was either total humiliation and disruption to the ritual or just going ahead with it. So I, the only thing I could say was, please hold my camera. And I went through with it. Ah, oh, now... You've had a technology, you've taken pictures, everything's at arm's distance. You've described the synergy and how in sync everyone is through it. But at this point, you literally are walking the walk through the fire. How would you describe that as, how would you describe that differently than you have in experiencing it in other ways? Was it what you expected or was there something else? It was both. So in the sense that, uh, and the first thing to say here, that's exactly why anthropologists talk about participant observation, because you can witness something, you can record something a hundred times, but then once you do it yourself, you just get a taste of the, of the thing. Just You, you mm. come to see what people meant when they mm. were describing that. So hundreds of people had described that moment to me, but going through that moment, uh, the one thing I realized, they were the, okay, yes, they're, they're right. A lot of the things they said resonated with me. Mm -hmm. uh, as you go through the fire, you go into this slow motion mode. Like, wow. I feel it's only, it only lasts a few seconds, but it feels like several minutes. Wow. And your peripheral vision gets completely blurred out. There's nothing around you. You know there are hundreds of people around you, but it's just you and the moment and the fire. Oh. And then as soon as you step out of it, it's like waking up from a dream. And then you suddenly you see people around you and they're rushing to congratulate you or hug you or talk to you. And it's only then that you realize what, what had just happened. And what of course, you your, your body reacts in all those funny ways. And I wish I had one of my monitors on myself because I'm pretty sure oh. that my heart rates were well above 200 
and you, you feel the adrenaline rush and, and you feel your hormones rushing through your body and, and all that, although it's a few seconds, you have time to actually feel all that. You feel it all. You do mm -hmm. feel that and you experience that in slow motion as you go over the fire. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. That is, that's incredible. I'm so glad that you did that. I'm so glad that they, <laughs> that they did it because that was such a cool part in the book. And it was a very, it was very surprising because you, the way that you wove that in, it was like, you've talked about all this stuff and then it's, oh, and then there was this that happened. And I thought that was just, that was well done. And so at the end of the book, you talk about harnessing uh, or how to harness the power of rituals in your own life. Mm -hmm. How would you, for our listeners today, maybe they're leading a team, but they want to harness that in their own life. Do you have any other parting wisdom for people that are just wanting to do this, whether they're maybe not even for work, just for themselves? What would you offer to those people to how to harness that power of rituals? Mm -hmm. So one thing to, to say and to, to repeat here is that ritual uh, extends far beyond religion. So a lot of the time when I talk to, when I talk to my students, for example, when I, when I ask them, do you have any regular rituals, any rituals that you perform on a regular basis? Many of them say no. And then we get into, <laughs> okay, what is a ritual? Do you attend birthday parties, weddings and funerals? Do you raise your glasses to make a toast? Do you have any superstitions if you're practicing sports and so on and so forth? And of course, all of them have an abundance of rituals. To that, I would say just embrace this, but also try to think about what types of rituals work uh, best for in, in different situations. So mm -hmm. is, that, is that a stressful time for you? A lot of people already perform rituals. They don't even think of them as rituals. So they do things like meditation and yoga. And they might do them uh, intentionally for stress relief or unintentionally, but they, but they have the same kinds of outcomes. Another advice, in the era of the digitalization of everything and remote yes. connections. Keep in mind that, and I mean, we know this from personal experience, all of us know this, but we also know it from our experiments that the, the physical co-presence in a collective ritual, uh, that mm. embodied sort of embedded experience, there's nothing like it. This mm. COVID was the best demonstration of this. People started mm -hmm. coming up with all kinds of online rituals. On the one hand, that showed how essential ritual is to our lives. Some yes. people risk their, their lives or they risk fines or they risk a lot of things just to attend a funeral or a wedding. Yes, yes. But others substituted those with online rituals. And of course, that that is better than nothing. But we know from our studies that attending a ritual in person is fundamentally different than attending a ritual online, virtually. Oh, interesting. So seek so that, there. that physical co-presence, seek that collective participation. That's part of what makes those rituals effective team building devices. I think that is fantastic advice. You have to be in the room. You got to be in the room. You got to be in the room to, to really, truly experience the power and the connectedness and the alignment and, and the community that it brings. I love that. I love that. Man, this has been fantastic. <laughs> this has just been awesome. I am. I just cannot tell you how much I appreciate your time and all the wisdom that you've shared around rituals and their importance in, in, in our experience and our lives and how they can bring us together. And I think what a great message post-COVID. I think that we've had so many people 
that we've seen studies on how anxiety's gone up and how depression rates have gone up through the COVID time because of this separation. And I just think that your message about rituals and their importance and how they build community is it's so needed. And yeah, it's a very cool COVID message. was actually the best natural demonstration of mm -hmm. the need for ritual because you had this paradox where it was this conundrum where it was precisely at the time that an entire generation, that was the most stressful moment of their lives. Mm -hmm. And that was the time where, that they were deprived of those rituals. And at mm. the same time, there was this need for connection. Again, mm. for the, an entire generation, there was never a moment where people needed more human connection. And that yes. was precisely the moment where they couldn't have it because of the restrictions. So that was the best natural demonstration of the need for a ritual. And the fact that okay. people went out of their way to take part in those rituals or to create new rituals or to find innovative ways of celebrating their rituals. Like they were Italian towns where people were creating bamboo poles with wine glasses attached to their ends. So they would reach out across their balconies, across the street, and make a toast with one another. Because that's that <laughs> a very simple thing that made them feel like human again. Yeah, it's not, it just, it, we, it brings people back together. Okay, this was, we would normally toast. We're not going to let this stand. Even if we have to stay in our, in our own place, we're going to toast across the, across the, I love that. Yeah. I didn't know so, that. I mean, you I can stand that. at your balcony, you can say hi to your neighbor, but the very yeah. simple physical act of being connected through, through, through two glasses that, that touch each other. So even this yeah. symbolic act of touching was fundamentally yeah. important to those people. It made them feel truly mm. connected. Hmm. Man, that is so good. Again, I think your message resonates with a lot of people, and I hope that a lot of people will share and listen to this episode because of that. And I think that if you're leading a team, if you're leading an organization, you really need to be intentional about creating that connectedness and rituals and meaning in people's work. I think purposelessness in work, it's very detrimental no matter what back perspective you are, if you lose purpose in your work and meaning in your work, it's not going to be good for your team, your organization. So use, use rituals to be intentional about that. And I know if you've listened to this show, you've gotten a lot of great tips on how to do that. All right. So we're getting to the end now. So we always ask the guests at the last 10%, we always say, who is someone that you would like to see or hear on the last 10%? So is there anybody that comes to mind for you that you would like to hear be a guest on the show? I actually think you would, you would really enjoy discussing with my friend, Paul Bloom. I mentioned him earlier and I, I can yes. see you're, you're, you're very excited about those topics. Among many other things, he talks about how people create meaning and sometimes they create meaning through suffering. Ah, okay. All right. So we're going to have to get connected with Paul. We'll have to get him on, see if we can get him on the last 10%. So yeah, that, that sounds awesome. That sounds like another great discussion. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell him that Demetrius talked us into it after telling us about pulling carts with hooks in our back. So we, at that moment, it was like, all right, we got to have you on. All right. So let's, if people want to get in touch with you, they want to interact with you about rituals, about maybe buying your book. How do you want people to reach out and or buy your book? Where can they find that? Well, you can find my book pretty much anywhere, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon. If you speak another language, it's been translated into, into 10 languages. Wow, uh, that's if awesome. If you want to reach out personally, I have the great benefit of having one of the rarest last names in America. <laughs> so, so if you type my last name, you will find me. 
Perfect. All right. We'll put some of those links to his books and Amazon Barnes and Noble on the show notes. And uh, we'll make sure that you can find, well, you, you can find Demetrius. Um, if you want to reach out to him or follow him on social media, we'll make sure that you have that opportunity to do that in the show notes because his work is so impressive and very interesting and very needed. So uh, Demetrius, thanks again for being on the last 10% today. This has been a pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. <laughs>